Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, today on the show, we have a veteran photojournalist who has spent his career in some of the most dangerous parts of the world, capturing moments for newspapers and magazines. His name is Robert Nicholsberg, and he spent his career in some really crazy places, Nicaragua during the conflict that happened there during the late 1970s, in India, Pakistan, and he spent a great deal of time in Afghanistan after the Soviet Union began withdrawing their troops back in the 80s. And he's been there all the way through 2013 and seen what was going on there with the U.S. missions there in Afghanistan. Anyway, today on the show, Robert and I discussed the life of a photojournalist and someone who, particularly a photojournalist, spends his time in some really scary places. We talk about how you become a photojournalist, how you got into it, if you're interested in that, what you need to do, what drew him to that, was it the adventure? We talk about what Afghanistan was like before 9-11. We also talk about what manliness means to Afghans, what he gleaned from that, from being so up close and personal with them. It was a really fascinating discussion. I think you'll really like it. So let's go on with the show. Bob Nicholsberg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Very nice to be here. So uh, you are a, a veteran photojournalist, and you've spent a great deal of your career in Afghanistan. How did you become a photojournalist, and how did you end up in Afghanistan, of all places? I became a photojournalist in the late 70s uh, as a freelance, uh, starting out in New York City, uh, learning the ropes, starting from the ground up struggling to sell individual prints, individual pictures. I spent some time in Washington on Capitol Hill learning how that uh, process functions for the media. It's, it's very disciplined and quite different than the rough and tumble uh, street side of being a photojournalist. And then I ended up in Central America in 1979. I had an interest in uh, Nicaragua, and particularly uh, the Sandinistas and uh, the conflict brewing there with General Somoza, uh, who was a strong U.S. ally. So I became interested. I've always been interested in current events and enjoyed traveling, and photography certainly fit the bill. So it seems like you've been drawn to places where there's conflict. Uh, I mean, was it just the sense of adventure, because, you know, like some of my, the great writers uh, like Jack London, Ernest Hemingway, 
you know, they started their careers as reporters or they spent some of their careers as reporters in the front lines of conflicts. So they were just there for the adventure. Uh, was that you or were you just generally interested in what was going on here? No, the sense of adventure needs to be in any profession, really, to to do it effectively. Uh, but I enjoyed recording the historical moment. And the, the more time I spent at it, the closer I could get to it. You could almost put your arms around it and then see it published the next day. So I, I did have some idea of there's a result from all this effort, whether it's a day's assignment or a two-week project. Uh, and in, as far as Afghanistan goes, I moved to India for Time magazine in 1987-88, coming from Southeast Asia, and knew that this was a very historical moment in context of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War. The Soviet army was in place in Afghanistan. A lot of Arab jihadis were also filtering through there. And it, uh, there, there was also the beginning of the Kashmir conflict inside India, also dependent on the Pakistani political situation, martial law in Pakistan and Bangladesh, a civil war in Sri Lanka. South Asia was very busy, and it was not on the radar screen the way it is today. Uh, thankfully, Time magazine had an Asian edition out of Hong Kong, which we could publish regularly. But uh, aside from the Cold War issues with Gorbachev and Reagan, it was very difficult to get the Afghan conflict into publication in, in the U.S., but... I was able to follow it all the way through, and last trip there was in 2013. I lived in India for 12 years. Wow. Um, what was your first trip like to Afghanistan? Because you were so you were there. It's the great thing, right? You were there when the um, Russians started, or the Soviet Union started withdrawing. Correct. Yes. Uh, prior to that, in 1987. There were no visas given during the Russian Russian army occupation in Kabul, very few. And also, if you did get to Kabul, you were very closely monitored. Um, so in 1988, my first trip was in January across the border from Pakistan into Afghanistan for a funeral. And there was a, the, still the Mujahideen were fighting the Russians and the Afghan army. But there was a truce for the burial of a very well-known Afghan politician from uh, during the British Empire days prior to 1947. And there was a funeral in the eastern city of Jalalabad in January of 1988. That was my first trip across with a visa in my passport. And prior to that, you had to go in, cross the border, uh, I guess you could say illegally, but go in with the Mujahideen, and you would be off for a week, two weeks, a month, whatever. Very haphazard. But in this case, I realized that the story was going to change once the Soviet army had announced that they were going to withdraw. And they were going to do that in public, and they allowed journalists to come in in May of 1988 to cover that withdrawal. But the first trip that I had in January of 1988 at this funeral in Jalalabad, halfway through the funeral ceremony, there were two very, very loud explosions in the parking lot off in the field about a quarter mile away. And obviously it was a set explosion and uh, created complete panic and pandemonium. Close to 20 people were killed. 
and everyone lost their driver. You couldn't figure out how to get home back across into Pakistan. So my first trip in was face to face with a violent situation, yet you had to maintain some composure and, and record it. Uh, and then three months later, I applied for another visa and, and got into Kabul for the first time in March, uh, April, May. Those three months, we were able to get a number of visas to go in and spend time there. How, When you were there at the beginning, what was it like to be a photographer? Because if I remember correctly, there were rules, particularly with the Taliban, about no photography, no take, no, you can't take pictures of people or something like that. You can take pictures of stuff. Was that well? The Taliban came out of the Mujahideen, which came out of the Afghan Army, the Communist Party of Afghanistan, which came out of the Soviet occupation. Pictures were not prohibited under in in those uh, years from 1988 to 1996 when the Taliban came in. In fact, taking pictures of women is frowned upon, and it was that was true uh, in, in those years prior to the Taliban. But generally, Afghans like to have their pictures taken. The Taliban initiated these very strict uh, guidelines in 1996, and yet off the side, Taliban would like to have their pictures taken as soon as their leader or their officer would go off you'd hear a whisper, please take my picture. So there was a bit of hypocrisy there, but um, if you were careful uh, and tried to be as unassuming as possible, you could work, not in all situations under the Taliban, but generally the Afghans are not camera shy. What, what, what is it about, like, why do they want their picture taken? Like, did you show them the pictures? Or, I mean, this wasn't the time of digital cameras where you could show them right away. Right. No, they were very unfamiliar with outside media. They had one government radio station, one government television station, one newspaper. And when you have barely 30% literacy in that country, uh, and it's 80% agricultural, wherever you go, there's really no concept of publishing or having your picture seen is often done uh, from a marriage, from a, from a uh, special situation, an anniversary of some sort, a graduation. Maybe Afghans had their pictures taken then, but there were no photo labs. There were very few wedding photographers, for instance. But they enjoy having an image of themselves. And this sort of confirms their identity, if you will. Uh, I never found uh, it, it completely impossible uh, not to work there. It became very um, awkward at times. The reporter could interview, but I couldn't photograph in many situations. So it, it became uh, a challenge to go out into the general public and to try to work that way rather than photograph a leader during an interview, for instance. But the reporter could record them and take notes, yet uh, I, I couldn't function in a lot of in, – in official capacity. Hmm. Um, the minister of justice, who was a very strange fellow under the Taliban, would not allow photographs, yet he spoke clearly into a microphone. So you just have to accept those ground rules. Yeah. So how did uh... – things change from 
after 9-11 and the occupation of, you know, the beginning of ground forces, U.S. ground forces in Afghanistan, what, what was the change like from before and after? Quite extreme, actually. The Afghans were very happy to be unshackled and to, to be much freer with their daily lives. Um, they knew this under the Taliban regime was it was an unnatural situation, and they put up with it. Afghans are survivors in, in every sense of the word, but they love music, they love dance, and they don't like to be bossed around. And those were many restrictions that they had to live with under the Taliban. Those were gone. And generally, Afghans like Americans. They find them happy, easy to talk to, and easy to steal from uh, because Afghans are very clever and they're constantly looking for ways to take advantage of you, often in a humorous way, but then also in a very... Uh, direct way if, if you cross the line and don't understand their culture or the, their traditions. And did that, that ever happen way, to you? That Did that ever happen to me? Yeah. Get, did you have something stolen from you? Uh, I, I did. I had some cameras stolen uh, at a press conference in, in 1997 at a base of a of military command, an Afghan military commander when, when the Taliban were coming up close to Mazar-e-Sharif up in the northwest. And I left some cameras behind the room, went out to get some fresh air, and came back, and the cameras were gone. And I created a—and this was in a compound. And uh, they found the, the uh, people who, who served tea during the press conference and, and roughed them up, and eventually they got the cameras back. But um, you had to be careful— don't give people the opportunity to steal. It is a, a, a great crime, particularly with uh, Muslims generally don't steal from each other, and the, the penalties can be severe. They, you know, what the Taliban did, they would cut off a hand, uh, corporal punishment. Um, and other than that, uh, you just have to expect somebody to try to see if they could get something from you, whether you weren't looking or get into your bag. or it, It's par for the course, but not just Afghanistan. Remember, I worked in South Asia. That's All true. the countries have a very similar culture that way, and uh, you have to tip people. And if you don't, they'll try to come back at you the other way. It's just they, they expect foreigners to give them a tip. And uh, there's certain customs and traditions that if, if you're willing to take the time, be a good observer, you'll see how the local people function. And they're, of course, uh, robbed, but um, it's due to ignorance, really. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Hey, Art of Manless listeners, if you shave on a regular basis, you know it can get really expensive really fast. Also, it with the cartridge razors, I had the problem. It just gave me uncomfortable razor burn, lots of bumps, lots of nicks. And it's one of the reasons why I shifted over to the, the safety razor, the double-edged safety razor a few years ago. But then I tried out harrys.com and it's changed my idea of cartridge blade shaving. Harry's was started by two guys who were just fed up with the high prices for blades and the uncomfortable shave. So they bought a blade company in Germany that makes high quality blades and they sell blades direct to the consumer. You don't have to go to the drugstore and go to that plexiglass case and ask the manager to open it up. 
half the price of the leading drugstore blades. And it's a great shave. I don't get razor burn with them. I don't get any nicks or cuts. And it's all sent directly to the door. No more going to the drugstore. If you want to try out Harry's, I got a deal for you right now. Go to harrys.com right now, and they'll give you $5 off if you type in my coupon code, manliness. That's harrys, H-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter coupon code manliness for $5 off on your first purchase and start shaving better today. Also buy Mott and Bow. If you're looking for a pair of quality denim that looks great at an accessible price point, Mott and Bow is the place to go. These guys have been making denim since 1982. Their philosophy is simplicity in design. So you don't have any weird embroidery on the back, no weird tags or anything like that. I hate that on jeans. They don't do that. Premium denim at an accessible price point, it's under $100. A lot of quality selvage denim. You can see up to $150 to $200, $250. You know, less than 100 bucks. And they fit great. And what Mottenbo does, a lot of times, you know, you're not sure about your, your waist size when you're shopping online. Because sometimes the 33... One place is a 34 somewhere else. Well, what Mott and Bo does, you can order both a 33 and a 34. They'll send you both pairs for free. You try on both. You keep the one that fits you perfectly, and then you send the other one back for free. Shipping is free both ways. If you want to try Mott and Bo out, got a deal for you. Go to mottandbow.com. That's M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com and enter Art of Man, all one word, at checkout for 20% off on your purchase. Again, mottandbow.com. Coupon code Art of Man at checkout for twenty percent off. And now back to the show. What what's the? Uh, I'm always curious about this. Like, what is the status of a journalist like yourself, like in a conflict zone? Um, I mean, how do how do the the American troops see you? How does the the, the locals see you? Because um, sometimes it seems like you're sort of in a no man's land at times if you get really in the thick of things. Well, you do have to figure. Where are you the most secure in a chaotic situation that you don't always obtain an answer or find a solution to that? And that may be what you're referring to, this no man's land. Yeah. But um, you certainly want to be around the commanding officer or someone who's giving the orders to find out what they're trying to do or what what the plan is. And then you can go off and see how it's carried out. But you do need to introduce yourself with the Americans. I've been working with American military since the early 1980s in Central America. For me, embeds were never an issue. I knew how to work with the military. It, it didn't restrict me. It provided The way I looked at it, it provided me with transportation and security to, to areas I wouldn't be able to get to as a civilian. It does limit you and that you're not able to talk to the opposition, for instance, whoever those people are. But uh, the idea was to see what the Americans in their big military footprint, what they were doing. And uh, I would try to maximize my time with them, whether it was a week, a day, a month, uh, living on a base, looking for opportunities to get out on a helicopter, photographing daily life of the soldier, uh, whatever it took to spend time with one side or the other. During the Mujahideen days in, in the Civil War in downtown Kabul, for instance, you needed to know how to get in and out of different neighborhoods where the front line was. 
where to be at, before sunset so you could get out of that area and how good your driver was, uh, find out who the neighborhood leader was. You had to do a lot of homework, and that would help uh, with the limited amount of time you had in a conflict zone. You have to figure you might be out of there in 20 minutes. You have to start working immediately and then ask for permission in some cases rather than ask for permission first. So you had to be able to juggle that kind of a situation as quickly as possible and uh, either go formal or go informal. Find out where the communication center would be, for instance. Find out where the clinic is. You can always, if you can't work at the front line, you can work at the clinic where the wounded come back to. So you could do both ideally, but you had to plan very carefully how you would spend your time. You and I have uh, exchanged some emails about uh, situational awareness. Um, was that something you had to develop? Like, as you, I don't know, like, did you realize you'd have to learn how to become situationally aware before you went into these places? Or was that something you just sort of developed naturally as a matter of being in these uh, environments that with, that were always rapidly changing? Um, and how did you go about developing that? I think in a lot of uh, third world countries, developing countries where I lived, remember, I didn't parachute into places and go back <laughs> to first world countries. I stayed uh, four years in El Salvador. And you get to know the rhythm of a place as best as you possibly can, what to expect, which is often to expect the unexpected, the spontaneous. Remember where your car is. Don't Park your car face in and park your car with the rear so you can get out of there fast, you know, or if you hire a driver, make sure the driver doesn't, you know, spend his time in, in a restaurant when you most need him to get going, for instance. But, uh, yes, situational awareness, you either have it or you don't. You can get rusty, certainly, if you're all of a sudden covering the flower show for six months and then you drop yourself into uh, a conflict zone, you're going to see that you are a little bit slow getting out of the gate. But yes, uh, the, one of the beauties and one of the main elements that attracts me to developing countries is how spontaneous they are. It, it's the unpredictable. It's also the ambiguous, the gray area, the shade, what's going on out there. No, nothing is as clear as we like it here in, in the United States, yes or no. It's in the maybe zone that. Uh, you're going to find an answer to really what's happening. How long have you been back in the States for a continuing I moved back to the United States in uh, 1999, 2000, but I continued to go overseas and I continued to go to Afghanistan and India uh, throughout that period while, when I was here. Um, and the last trip to Afghanistan was in May of 2013 for the last pictures of the book. Mm -hmm. And what have you done since then? Uh, since moving back to the States, the States, you know, having lived close to 25 years outside of uh, the U.S., I'm, I'm relatively new to my own country and getting to know it uh, again. Uh, I've, I've worked a lot around the 9-11 issue. Um, once that happened, certainly with the Homeland Security Department and counterterrorism, 
all the way down to street gangs in, in Los Angeles with the Los Angeles Police Department, Mata Salvatrucha, MS-13 street gangs from Central America that are very violent here. I found to be a legacy of the time that I spent in Central America. Actually, uh, many people who came north as uh, immigrants then got pulled into these street gangs after I left El Salvador. So it was a way for me to tie those uh, environments together. Uh, and particularly now, I've, I've worked a, a, quite a bit on human trafficking as well as uh, Muslims in America on post 9-11, uh, how they handle uh, being targeted or how they integrate themselves in daily life in the U.S. Um, very much issue-oriented. I see. Um, I'm curious about this, and it's okay if you don't have a full answer for it, um, but you had a chance to be up and up close and personal with uh, Afghans. And I'm curious if you observed anything about their notions of masculinity that are different from, say, in the United States? Or was it, did it different from tribe to tribe? Or was there sort of an underlying ethos amongst all of them? Well, there's a great amount of pride in uh, either the, the tribe or the individual. And there's still from the rural areas to the urban areas, you will see a difference, obviously, but they're very independent people. Uh, there's certain sensitive areas that, as Westerners, you don't talk about, and uh, particularly about their family or about the women in their family, for instance. You have to be very, very careful about that. Um, and also, I noticed Things start off very formally, uh, and within an hour, you've made a friend for a very long time. And they're looking for ways to see if you can be trusted. Remember, there's the contracts are not signed there. It's, it's done on a handshake. So trust, faith, confidence, um, really has to be built up over a period of time, whether you have a half an hour with somebody or, or, or three, four, five years as a neighbor. Uh, they, they want to feel confident about you. And they certainly do exert their masculinity over members in their family. Elders must be listened to, particularly the men. And women are very often kept... Uh, down in the sense of the way we look at gender equality in this country and in Europe, for instance, women are, are uh, in a not so subtle way looked at as property. So it's not that difficult for a male to uh, exert his authority uh, over his family and particularly women. Um, it, it's a complicated issue in that country, gender equality and it's not easily addressed in the in the countryside as much as it might be evident in an urban city environment. That's also true in India and Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, all the countries that I worked in recently, mm -hmm. as well as the Middle East. So uh, it it comes through in different ways. Uh, you can know somebody in Afghanistan for ten years yet never meet their wife. 
in a very traditional family, or they'll be the daughters will come out, and then eventually you might get to uh, meet the spouse. There might be more than one, and you have to figure out whether or not you can reach out and shake their hand the way we so. Uh, our first reaction is to shake people's hands. There you wait to see if the woman will put their hand out. And the, and the males are watching this very closely. So uh, you have to respect that. And I think they there might be subtle indications that there's a masculinity difference between the cultures and then some not so subtle, the way you cannot intervene if a woman is being uh, abused or or pushed around by a male, you pretty much have to go across the street and and not bother. Whereas that kind of chivalry would be expected here. So it, it's slightly complicated, but uh, it, it's a very good question and mm. point that you raise. I, so I'm sure there's some folks who are listening to this. You know, we have a lot of younger guys um, who are like they want to become a photojournalist. Um, if for those guys, what's your advice for them? If they, that's the way they want their career to be, what's the best way to get started? Well, the best way is to perfect storytelling, uh, whether it's through sound, video, or still photography. Uh, we're all storytellers, and that can't be... Uh, you can perfect it, but whether or not that can be learn from zero to a hundred. That's one issue that you have to decide whether you're able to tell a story with pictures and how closely you want to work with individuals or do you work better in a studio with objects that don't talk back to you or architectural photography, for instance. But I also think you need to read, do home, do your homework, become as well informed about an issue as you possibly can and then go out and uh, try to work from dawn until dusk, work with light, work with the elements, understand the machinery that you, you have. Cameras are just machines. It's the person behind it that really has to figure out aesthetics, sequencing, uh, chronology, editing, and all that comes out in the wash as a story and how you present that to editors. So it's a 360 degree approach. And that's not as easy as people think it is. You may have good impulses, good instincts, but you have to get that under control and have strict discipline and a work ethic. Can you have a family with this job? Because it seems like you travel a lot. Uh, journalism, photography is not great for domestic tranquility, I guess you could say, but, uh, I, I don't have children. Um, I pretty much led the life of a gypsy, uh, until I was married in 2000, uh, but no children. Yes, it is. It, it presents a lot of stress and you better have the right partner. That's all I can add to that. Really respect other people. And uh, I, I don't go to work and come home at five. That's pretty obvious. Um, and nor, nor do other successful photojournalists or videographers or reporters for that matter. It's just not possible. Um, I'm not often around for anniversaries or Thanksgiving or Christmas. 
Uh, and if that can be established, a relationship will be able to be maintained. <laughs> so you got to be upfront with a potential partner. That I, uh, It's no secret that I have a bag packed um, pretty much all the time, or at least I know how to do it with one eye closed. Yes. <laughs> well, Bob, where can uh, people learn more about your work? I would think the best place, particularly with the Afghanistan work, is uh, the book that's recently come out, Afghanistan, A Distant War, which is available online, of course, or in bookstores. And on my web website, robertnicholsberg.com, you can see a lot of the work that's, uh, that I've done over the years. Fantastic. Well, Bob, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brett. Enjoyed it. Our guest today was Robert Nicholsberg. He is a photojournalist, and he just recently came out with a book called Afghanistan, A Distant War. It's a collection of just really arresting, beautiful pictures throughout his career in Afghanistan, starting in the 80s with the withdrawal of Soviet troops. Really just beautiful photography. Go check it out. You can find that on Amazon.com. And like Robert said, you can find out more about his work at robertnicholsberg.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you would go to Stitcher or iTunes or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast and give us a rating. doesn't matter what it is. I don't care. Just give us a rating. That will help us out and give us some feedback and also let your friends know. We appreciate that as well. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful, but we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.